perfect number going into the book of Zechariah. I'm Pastor Jay, and it is a privilege to welcome you. And I do invite you to open your Bibles or on your device, go to the book of Zechariah in our Old Testament. Toward the end, we are in a series in the last 12 books of our English Bible. I say English because these are not the last 12 books in the Hebrew Bible, but they are in the English Bible. It's just a matter of how they are arranged. We're in a series on the minor prophets, these last 12 books. So in English Bibles, it goes from Hosea to Malachi. This weekend, we come to the book of Zechariah, which is of the 12, the longest of the 12. And it is the most messianic, meaning it has the most references to Jesus as coming Messiah. And it's also been compared often to the book of Revelation in the New Testament, and sometimes actually called the book of Revelation of the Old Testament because of how much imagery and symbols are in it. We'll get into that. The key theme of Zechariah's book is this. I'll tell you what it is, then I'll keep telling you what it is, and then I'll tell you what it is when we land the plane. The theme is this. God remembers his people. The name Zechariah in Hebrew either is God has remembered or God remembers especially his promises to his people and especially to Israel, which is especially relevant right now, obviously, with what's going on in the Middle East and the war over there between Israel and Hamas. The references in this book to a coming epic battle, whether that's actually begun or what we're seeing now is just further tremors of what is to come, is a reminder of the battle between good and evil. Zechariah is filled with hope. Whether you're here today and you're a kid, young person, or adult, this book is filled with hope and encouragement for God's people in every generation. Now, when you come to this book, the best way to divide it up <clears throat> it seems to be how Zechariah organizes material, which is, first, there are eight visions, and then there are four messages, chapters 7 and 8, that's a new section, and then at the very end, there are two predictions or two prophecies. So that is a standard way that Old Testament scholars seem to divide this book up. So with that, let's dive in. We're going to, first of all, look at these eight visions. I should let you know right up front. He had all eight visions in one night. So if you think you've had a bad night, or I'm not sure if you had a good sleep score last night or a bad sleep score, this would have been a pretty funky night for Zechariah to have all eight of these visions on the same night. I don't think he got a lot of sleep. Eight visions, chapters one to six. I'm going to read verse one. This sets the stage pretty much as all the prophets do. They tell you where they are at that moment in history. It's a reminder the Bible's very different than, say, the Book of Mormon or the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita, which has events that really are not anchored in history. You have a book here where God is saying, and the prophet's writing, want you to know, this is when I wrote, these events really happened, they took place, and he dates his book by the reign of a Persian king, whom we in fact know reigned at this time. Darius. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. So there's the stage. We can date this pretty accurately to the fall of 520 BC. So that's the backdrop. Here's what's going on. Most of the minor prophets, if you've been with us for this series, wrote 
before Israel went into what we call an exile. What's that? Well, there was this invasion by Babylon, and they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and they took the vast majority of people hostage back to Iraq for about 70 years, what is today Iraq. Most of the minor prophets wrote before that event to warn God's people, if you don't turn around and repent, this is what's going to happen. Well, it happened. Three of the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, wrote after that exile is over. Not only is it over when Zechariah is writing, the people have now returned, those that are still alive, roughly 50,000 people returned. And they actually have been in the land now for about 15 years. And they are, they've been rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple. And the whole thing is kind of stalled and really isn't going anywhere. And that's really where this book is set. Chapter 4, verse 10 said, it seemed like it was a day of small things, meaning not much was going on. It just seemed like life was just trudging on one day, one week, one month. They all blurred into the next month. You may be in a season of life like that right now. There's just discouragement. Doesn't seem like anything's going on. Seems like God's forgotten you. That is where these people are. Discouragement is a good key word to describe the context of this book. And here's the problem with discouragement, as a lot of us know. <clears throat> when you get down and we get discouraged, we often default to destructive behaviors because we're looking for a shortcut to do what? Feel good again, right? And so sometimes as we're looking at the menu of, okay, I want to feel good again and I want to feel good again faster than not, sometimes we choose very sinful things to do to try to feel better quickly. That's pretty much natural for human beings who are sinners. And that is what was going on here, and that is why the book begins with a robust call. First, before we get into these visions that are very hope-filled, you have a very strong summons in the opening section here to return to the Lord. So that's what's going on. First, the summons, and then we'll get into the hopeful part. But Verses 2 to 6, the people were discouraged, they had stalled, they thought God had forgotten them, they were starting to do their own thing, and they were choosing sinful practices to try to feel good again, and Zechariah calls them back to the Lord. Verse 2, the Lord was very angry with your ancestors, therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Obviously, yes. Then, this is encouraging, they repented. Something we don't typically see as God confronts his people in the minor prophets. Here, they did repent. And they said, here's what they said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve. There's a spiritually mature response when God disciplines us, just as he determined to do. This now brings us to the main theme of Zechariah. And again, this has to do with his name. 
And his name in Hebrew means God remembers or God has remembered. And so the main theme of this book is that in spite of what the people were feeling, in spite of the discouragement and swamp of despair they were kind of sunk into, Zechariah's writing and has this series of visions to remind them, God has not forgotten his people, those who know him. He is on the move. And just because it seems like life is going nowhere at the moment, or they're stuck in the swamp of discouragement, depression, and despair, they need to be hopeful and remember that God is actually a promise keeper, and he's on the move. And though events from our perspective may seem slow, he in fact will bring to completion. So if you're here today, here's the application for us. If life is weighing you down right now, and that's true for a number of us here this morning, if you're discouraged here this morning, Zechariah is exactly what the doctor has ordered. Young people, this is good stuff. And the sooner you grasp books like this, the better life's going to go for you if you heed what they say. So if you're discouraged right now, say by parenting issues or financial issues or health issues, number of us discouraged with health issues or relationship issues or current events or just life in general, Zechariah is a book for discouraged people. That's why the theme he remembers who want to find hope God's way, not the world's way. And the Bible teaches there's always hope when we return to the Lord and fear him and eagerly obey him. Now, after the initial call to the Lord, starting in verse 7, these eight visions come, bam, 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 one right after the other, again, all on the same night. And he has these eight visions, and we just need to say right up front, if you have not, I assume some of us here, probably several, have not read the book of Zechariah, I would encourage you to read this and be reading these as we preach them. I hope you have been. But Zechariah sounds pretty weird to Western ears, and that's because it is largely apocalyptic. I'm going to talk about that a little bit in a minute, but apocalyptic literature is very foreign for the most part to Westerners. See, every culture has genres that they get and they don't get. So if somebody would walk up to you and you would say like, hey, what'd you do last night? Oh, last night we watched a guy movie. Well, you kind of have an idea, even if you don't like guy movies, what the probably lots of explosions and body count, you know, people dying. Or if someone said to you, oh yeah, yeah, last night we watched a chick flick and we had a box of Kleenex. Well, you'd probably know, okay, well, when someone says to you, oh, this is apocalyptic, that's an immediate signal. Oh, you can expect certain things in this kind of literature, just like, or a kind of movie. If you say it's a chick flick or a guy movie or a slasher movie, you know, certain things are going to happen. Certain things aren't going to happen. Same thing with apocalyptic literature. Certain things are going to happen. Well, this is apocalyptic. So let me give you a couple facts about these visions so that we better navigate them. Number one, the eight visions speak to both Israel's current situation in 520 BC in the fall and to their future situations. Like most biblical prophecy, you have a near and a far going on at the same time. There's near fulfillment, and then there's far fulfillment, and then sometimes there's kind of a mid-range fulfillment, and sometimes they all get swirled together. And therefore, events that look like they're right back-to-back -back can sometimes be hundreds of years apart or thousands of years apart. 
And that's just not the way Westerners read things. That's the first thing. Secondly, the visions deal with both comfort for Israel and judgment on the nations. Need to know that. Thirdly, these visions contain heavy doses of apocalyptic. And I'm going to give you some characteristics of that in a second. But you need to know that because this stuff's strange to foreign ears. And the point of the visions is the key. You got to keep this in mind. So if you're taking notes, don't get lost in all the imagery and freak out with all the things going. What is the point of the eight visions? Kids, what's the point of these eight visions? Here it is. These visions call those who know God to refocus them on who God is and his promises. That's what they're doing. To refocus discouraged saints and remind them that God has not forgotten them. And some of us desperately need to hear that this morning. In fact, most Christians need to hear that at least once a week. But sometimes we get in a season where we really need to hear that. And that's what's going on. Now, let me say a couple things about apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature, and there's heavy doses of apocalyptic, by the way. We're going to go to Bible college here for just a second. There's heavy doses of apocalyptic literature in Ezekiel, in Zechariah, in Daniel, and the book of Revelation. None of them are pure apocalyptic, but there's big sections of apocalypse. It comes to the Greek word, which means apocalypsis, which means unveiling or revealing. So what, is, what, what are the characteristics? Here they are. Apocalyptic literature is filled with dream sequences and visions and angels and images about leaders like horns and symbols and, guys like this one, violent imageries of battle. That's what apocalyptic literature is about. And here's a couple mistakes that Westerners make when it comes to apocalyptic. And you see this, by the way, in some of popular books like Left Behind or some popular level commentaries in the book of Revelation. We want to press these things for literal detail. That's not what apocalyptic is written like. Another mistake Westerners make is thinking that all things are sequential. That's the way we read text for the most part. We read, okay, chapter 3 comes for chapter 4, so therefore the events in chapter 3 happen before chapter 4. And that's one of the mistakes that a lot of people make in the book of Revelation is you just think the whole thing is, is, is sequential. And that's not how apocalyptic moves. We move in one direction and we're fairly linear. Apocalyptic, here's the key, is moving in all directions at once. Now, I don't know if you've ever driven in India or been in a car in India. But anybody here been, been in a car in India? A few, I see a few hands. Okay. Every time I'm in, Becky and I have been in India or in Pakistan and we get into a car, um, it's, there's no other word to describe it, at least for a Westerner, except, wow, it's just a lot going on at once. And, it, and it's like, you know, we're used to traffic all moving in one, you know, nice orderly lanes. And it, everybody's going every direction, all at once. The first time we ever landed in India with our kids a number of years ago, and we got in the car in Bombay at midnight and jumped in a taxi. Uh, wow. You've got rickshaws and cows and buses, and there's a lot going on, and it's all going on at the same time and going different directions. And it is extremely disorienting if you've never been in it before. Even, even though we've been in it several times, it's still disorienting for us. It's not right or wrong. It's just a really different way to run a road system. That's a good description and a good visual of apocalyptic literature compared to Western literature, which is all kind of nice and neat and staying in one lane and everything just going. That's not apocalyptic literature. And what's the, here's the big idea. So you, okay, you say, okay, that's, that's 
how it works. What's the big idea? Here's the big idea of apocalyptic literature. God is on the move. He is going to triumph. And in the end, he will crush, smash, and destroy his enemies, including the devil. And he wins. That's the point of apocalyptic literature. So whether you're navigating Ezekiel or Daniel, parts of Daniel, or Zechariah or the book of Revelation, when you hit apocalyptic, don't try to press it for detail. Remember things are going on in many different directions. And remember the big picture. God wins. And it's written to encourage discouraged people. That's why, by the way, apocalyptic in the book of Revelation is so popular in Africa, in the Middle East. They love it. And one of the reasons they love it is because they come from a section of the world that's often war-torn. And they live with violence. And they want to be reminded the king is on the throne. And even if they die, it's going to be okay. Because in the end, they know how the story ends. And that's what apocalyptic wants to remind us. All right, this brings us to the sequences of dreams themselves. We're not going to look at all eight. I am going to dip into three of them. The point of the visions. God is large and in charge. He remembers, and he is the ultimate promise keeper. So I'm going to dip, first of all, in, I'm going to dip into vision three, four, and five. That's the only ones I'm dipping into. That gives us a flavor. So vision number three starts in chapter two, verse one. And the lesson, I'm going to give you the lesson of each of these three visions. So this is the man with a measuring line. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. And the lesson is that God will dwell with his people. And dwelling is a, God dwelling with his people is a huge uh, theme in the book of Zechariah. And the key verse here, in fact, this is a good key verse for the book of Zechariah, is chapter 2, verse 13. Man with a measuring line, God dwelling with his people. Chapter 2, verse 13, here's the point of the third vision. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. That is hard to do, especially as we live in an age of increasing distractions from the internet, from streaming, from screens, from cell phones. Sat by somebody recently at a church, another state, in fact, another country. And a gal sitting right beside me was on her phone, the entire service, cruising Amazon. Distractions are everywhere. Some of us this morning are on our phone and we're not checked in right now. It's everywhere. And it makes it hard to do verse 13, to be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has aroused himself from his holy dwelling. The fourth vision, which is chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, is a vision of Joshua the high priest. And the lesson here is God's forgiveness and a coming Messiah. Let me read verses 1 to 4. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Again, these are all on the same night. These visions are just happening. Boom, boom, boom. He showed me Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord and the Satan, it says in Hebrew, the Satan, the accuser, standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to the Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not man, a burning stick snatched from the fire? That was... 
one of John Wesley's life verses, the great British evangelist who saw himself as God delivering him as a burning stick out of the fires of judgment. And he looked to Zechariah 3 verse 2 as kind of his life verse. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and put fine garments on you. Some of you know the name Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher 150 years ago, largest church on the planet. He had a marvelous sermon based on these first five verses. It was called Clothed in Righteousness. And he said it perfectly illustrates the doctrine of justification in the New Testament, where God takes off our dirty garments and clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And it happens the moment of conversion. So it's beautiful. And then verses 8 and 9 in the same vision speak of a coming servant and a branch. These are key code words for coming Messiah. So verses 8 and 9, listen, Joshua, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. So now we know, okay, this is speaking of the future. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. That's Messiah talk. That's Messiah lingo. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes. This is classic apocalyptic imagery on that one stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So you have imagery of a coming Messiah. And in, in verse 10, in that day, you will invite your neighbor to sit under a vine and a fig decree declares the Lord Almighty. So this day of restoration is coming in Messiah. And then the fifth vision, and we'll, this is the last one we'll look at, chapter 4, verse 1 to 14. And the lesson of the fifth vision is this. I'll give it to you. Ready? God's temple, which had stalled, they weren't, they had started to build it and it kind of stalled, will be rebuilt. And, very familiar verse to a lot of people, it will be rebuilt, chapter 4, verse 6, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is the vision of the golden lampstand and the olive trees, chapter 4, 1 to 14. Eight visions designed to remind us, God's people, if you know, I know not everyone here knows the Lord, but if you know the Lord here this morning, to remind you, especially if you're discouraged. God is sovereign. His timetables are not our timetables. His ways are not our ways. He is faithful and he keeps his promises. If he has said something, you can write it in the past tense. It's going to happen. And some of us, friends, I know some of us are desperate to hear that today. That brings us to four messages next. This is a new section. And you need to know it's now been two years. So you have these eight visions, chapters one to six, that all take place in one night. Now it's been two years, and you come now and you get four messages from the Lord to his people. And, and, and Zechariah delivers these four messages, and they're messages of rebuke and hope. And so I'm just going to tell you what the four messages are, and I'm going to dip very briefly into a couple of them. The messages are, first of all, chapter 7, 1 to 7, insincere worship or insincere fasting. That's the first one. Second vision I mean, message, second uh, message here, justice and compassion. Some very familiar uh, wording here for a lot of us. Third 
message, a promise to return, God's promise to return and dwell with his people. Again, that theme of dwelling with his people. And the fourth message is a big theme in Zechariah. And that is this, the nations that actually attacked Israel and persecuted them will seek God one day and become one people with Israel. Pretty shocking message for Israel. So first of all, the first message, chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, insincere fasting. What's that about? Very simply this. This section, chapter 7, begins with a question about fasting. The people of Bethel sent a delegation of, to ask the priests and prophets if they needed to keep fasting like they had been doing on the fifth month of the year. And Zechariah challenges them not for asking it, but for their motivation, which is exposed, of just going through the motions of worship. They were just checking off the box. And quite honestly, that's one of the most common things that happens with Christians and non-Christians. It's very easy just to kind of do it. Again, back to the distractions today. It's very easy just coming to a worship service, sit, really not be engaged, be doodling on our phone, doing other stuff, singing songs, listening to sermons, and really not even be there mentally or emotionally. That's insincere worship, and he nails them here for it. The second message is now in chapter 7. It's verses 8 to 14, and it's a vision, I mean, a message about compassion and judgment. And I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. Very familiar wording, by the way, if you know your Bible. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the, or the poor, and do not plot evil against other people. So that's the second message of justice and compassion. The third message is this promise to return and dwell with his people. Here, this is captured in chapter 8. This actually runs from chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 17. But let me just read two verses, verses 3 and 4. The promise to return and dwell with his people. This is what the Lord says, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city in the mountain of the Lord Almighty, will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Love this next, this next paragraph. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. And the city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. Beautiful imagery of restoration. The last message is about one of the most common themes in the prophets and in Zechariah. And that is this, that the very nations who persecuted Israel will in fact one day seek the Lord and become one people with Israel. And that is in chapter 8, verses 18 to 23. I'll just read verses 20 to 23. This is what the Lord says. Many peoples... And inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I'm going myself, or I myself am going. And many peoples, that word means ethnic groups, not just one people group, many peoples. And powerful nations will come to Jerusalem. And what is it they're going to come to do? What's verse 22 say? To seek the Lord Almighty. So these nations 
that have been Israel's enemy, they're going to come to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. Verse 23, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard God is with you. Back in chapter 2, verse 11, there's a verse that says, many nations will be joined to the Lord and become one people. My people. This references back to sections like Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19 has a very interesting paragraph in it where it says, one day, Israel and Assyria, Assyria and the Egyptians will all be worshipers of Yahweh and he will call the three of them together, my people. It's hard for us to understand what a shocking declaration that is. It would be like today saying, yeah, Israel and Hamas and Hezbollah are all going to be, you know, there's going to be elect out of all of them and they'll be called all one, my people. But that's exactly what he was saying. God has an elect among all peoples and he is summoning them out. And one day around the throne, that is why it's going to be a multicolored rainbow thing. Not rainbow like LGBTQ, but rainbow like it should be used in the Bible. This beautiful display of diversity that God says one day around the throne, there's going to be people peoples from every tribe, tongue, and language worshiping the Lord. So you have this all nations global focus in Zechariah. I was reading this week, church historian Ian Shaw, and he was reminding us that from the moment of Jesus' resurrection, this kind of a promise went into high gear. From the moment of the resurrection, the gospel literally exploded all over the Mediterranean world. And Ian Shaw, is a very good church historian, said within just 500 years, think about this, of the death of Christ, the church had spread. If you look at a map in 500 AD of where the church had spread just in 500 years, it is incredible to see where it ended up that fast. He says it ended up in first 500 years, you already see churches all over in Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Central Asia, the Persian Gulf, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and China. And it just kept spreading. Several years ago, Becky and I were in Saudi Arabia. We were taken to a chapel from the fourth century. It's just sitting out in the desert in the middle of nowhere in a garbage dump. Saudi government is not taking care of it. But there it sits, and we were able to go to it, walk around in it from the fourth century already over in Arabia. The gospel, friends, exploded, and it continues to explode around the world. Why? Because it all goes back to the story of the Bible. What's the story of the Bible? God's promise to become famous and to advance his name among all peoples for his glory and their salvation. That's the story of the Bible, and it beats strong in Zechariah. Lastly, this brings us to the two prophecies. These chapters were written after the temple now is completed. These two prophecies. So you got chapters 9 to 14. And you have these two predictions. And we're now post-temple being completed. And both prophecies dealing with God establishing his kingdom on earth. And so they're describing future events. But here's the key. Got apocalyptic going on. So some, were bef some of these predictions here in chapters 9 to 14 are fulfilled before Jesus' incarnation, some during his earthly ministry, and some when he returns, and there's kind of swirled together. It's not just in a straight linear fashion. Again, don't miss the point of apocalyptic. God is in control. God wins. 
and his Messiah will triumph. That's what's going on. So, first of all, the two predictions. The first prophecy is chapters 9 to 11, and it's a prophecy that Messiah will be rejected. You say, well, I thought these were the hope-filled chapters. Well, they are, but the Lord is saying, I first am bringing oppression on my people for their disobedience before the hope comes. So, prophecy number one, chapters 9 to 11, the rejection of the Messiah. And again, you got that near-far thing going on here. Don't miss that. And in this section, you have predictions both of the first coming of Jesus and his second coming, and sometimes they're right back to back. So, for example, chapter 9, verse 9. An extremely familiar verse to just about anybody who grew up in any kind of a church. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king. Comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And that is obviously applied to Jesus' life on Palm Sunday in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. And that took place in the first century. There is a clear prediction that the New Testament sees fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. But then you just move on one verse, chapter 9, verse 10, the second part of verse 10, you have a clear reference to his second coming. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim, he, who, who's he? Messiah. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, has that happened yet? No. No. So again, you have this first prophecy is the rejection of Messiah. And you have references to his first coming and his second coming. And then in chapters 10 and 11... Here's, here's the problem. We're told that Israel's deliverance and glory will be held up a bit and preceded by oppression. And the reason is Messiah will be rejected by both the leaders and the people. And so there's going to be a roadblock and a detour. That brings us to the second prophecy. This is where hope surges. So if you're here today and you're discouraged, this is where hope surges. And this second prophecy the first one is on rejection. This one is return and reign of Messiah. And this is chapters 12 to 14. And again, kids, younger people, don't miss. You got near far going on here. And at times, it's even difficult to tell, okay, which events are close by, which are mid-range out, and which are in the distant future. And sometimes, they're all three mixed together at once. Think again, driving in India. It's not like driving in the West. But here's three things we know for sure. Hey, don't miss these. Three things we know for sure from these last three chapters, even though the, you got a lot of things going on here with close by, mid-range, and distant. We do know three things for sure. One, in these last few chapters. The death of the Messiah is foretold. In one of the most famous verses, chapter 12, verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication... And they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him. This verse is picked up in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and applied to Jesus. We know that refers to his first coming and his death. That's the first thing we know for sure. Second thing we know for sure, in the last days, there's going to be a huge epic battle against Israel. What we have seen just recently is a foretaste of what is to come. 
And this is described in the last chapter, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. That's the second thing we know for sure. This last epic battle that will come against God's people. What's going to be a shocker here is who instigates this battle. You would think, well, this is the devil. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up from within your very walls. Please notice verse 2. I. Who's the I? The Lord. I will gather the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. So God is orchestrating this final epic battle of evil against his people. I will gather the nations to Jerusalem in order to fight against it. The city will be captured. That's pretty brutal. Houses ransacked and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile. What we have seen in the last month is just a foretaste of how brutal. Here, half the city's taken. And there's ransacking and raping and pillaging. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Now, just about the time you think, why would God do that? Notice something very unique here. The, tail, the, the scales are flipped, and God now tells you what's going to happen to those very nations that he organized to go against his people. Verse 2, again, first phrase, I'm going to gather the nations to Jerusalem and fight against it. Now go to verse 3, first phrase. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those very nations that he organized to go against his people. You say, what's that about? I don't know. I'm just telling you what it says. That's my goal. You see the same kind of thing in Jeremiah 25, where God says, I'm going to call my servant Nebuchadnezzar. I'm bringing him against my people to punish them. And as soon as he's done, I'm going to punish him for touching my people. Or you see the same thing in Isaiah 37, where God says, I'm going to summon Assyria. It's been planned and ordained. I'm bringing them against my people. And when they're done, I will unleash my judgment on Assyria for daring to touch my people. See, there's complexity here in the sovereignty of God. That's the second thing going on. The third thing going on. First, the death of Messiah is foretold. Secondly, there's going to be this final epic battle. And then thirdly, in the midst of all this epic battle, Messiah is coming back. 14 verses 3 and 4. The Lord will go out against those nations, and he fights on that day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now we're talking about Messiah coming back east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. Look at verses 9 to 11. The Lord will be king over all the earth. Obviously, this is in the distant future still. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name, on the whole land from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin gate to the site of the first gate to the corner gate. And from the town of Hananel to the royal wine presses and will remain in its place. Got to love verse 11. It will be inhabited never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. So there's the three things promised in this last prophecy of the return and reign of Christ. All right. What is this summoning us to do before we go to the Lord's table this morning? Two things. Two clear summons scream out from Zechariah. May I have your attention, please? These need to be heard. 
Summons number one. Make sure you have peace with God for the judgment day. Make sure you have peace with God to avoid the coming judgment. The Bible says the greatest need of any of us is to have peace with God and be forgiven and be reconciled. Now, about this point, a lot of people say, well, I'm not at war with God. I'm just not sure he exists or I'm just kind of, wanna, you know, I want to be spiritual, but I'm not at war with him. The Bible says we're born at war with God and we're lawbreakers from the womb and we are sinners by nature and by birth and by choice, which makes us at war with God. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Yours is and mine is. And the Bible says the only way to escape and be reconciled to God and be forgiven is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you know Christ and have you been reconciled to him? Young people, do you know Christ? Kids, do you know Jesus? It, parents, I hope you're evangelizing your kids. I hope you have them in our worship services so they can sit under the preaching of the word. And adults, have you trusted Christ as Savior? That's the first summons that comes screaming out of any of the minor prophets. The second lesson is unique to Zechariah, and it is this. Once saved, one of the best ways to fight discouragement is with the promises of God. So let me say this. That's what Zechariah is doing the whole book. He is hurling promises at a discouraged people saying, God has not forgotten you. Yes, it may seem like you haven't heard from him in a long time. Yes, it may seem like the heavens are brass and your prayers aren't going anywhere. Yes, you might be sitting in great discouragement, pain and sorrow. But if you know Christ, if you know God, Zechariah is saying, God has not forgotten you. He's writing to remind and discourage people that God has promised to dwell with his people, to fight for his people, and that he will triumph for his people. And I know as a pastor, there's a lot of discouraged people here this morning, even true Christians. But whenever we find ourselves drifting into discouragement and fear, here's the problem. We have forgotten what God has said. And that is why I love the Puritans' emphasis on meditation. They said, it's not enough to read the word, that's critical. It's not enough to sit under the preaching of the word, that's critical. They kept calling God's people back to meditation on the word. It's a very biblical thing out of the Psalms. That means deliberate, time-sensitive, you know, like not just real quick, deliberate soaking and chewing on sections of Scripture. I've been reading Richard Baxter lately. His book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, great book on heaven. And he said this, he wrote back in the 1650s, we will enjoy God as much as we train our understanding and affections sincerely on him. We will enjoy God only as much as we train our understanding and affections on him. That means deliberate chewing on sections of scripture. So I'm going to close with four of my favorite promises in the Bible. Friends, if you know the living God this morning, kids, if you know Christ, we got a treasure chest here of promises. And it's no different for me than you. I have to focus on these and chew on them just like you do. And I have to do it the next day and then the next day. But here's four of my favorite. And this is the kind of thing you need to memorize, put in your car, put on your mirror and chew on. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's blazing, by the way, over the organ at Moody Church downtown Chicago. 
powerful promise. Or Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon formed against me can prosper. That is speaking of someone who knows the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 29, God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Or one of my favorite, John 16, 33. Claim this next time you're discouraged. I have told you these things, said Jesus, so that you might have peace. In this world, you will have troubles. We know that. But take heart. I have overcome the world. These are the kind of promises, friends, that pull God's people forward in joy, courage, and hope. And that is why this book is so incredibly powerful. Zechariah.